It is time for more knowledge nuggets. My chef, or better said guest today, is Amanda Natividad. You probably already know Amanda from Twitter, but if you don't, Amanda is the VP of Marketing at SparkToro, an ad week contributor, trained chef, former journalist, and previously led marketing at companies like Growth Machine, Liftopia, and Fitbit. Amanda and I talk about the similarities between cooking and creating content, the differences between good and bad content, and how to stick out from all the noise on social media. Before we get into today's episode, I want to introduce our sponsor for this one, Ahrefs. Ahrefs is the all-in-one SEO tool set that makes it super simple to audit your site, analyze competitors, and track your ranking progress. You probably read one of their many excellent blog articles, but did you know that Ahrefs provides a free Webmaster Tools account that allows you to track your site's growth? If you don't, head over to Ahrefs Trips.com and check it out. And now, enjoy this tasty episode with Amanda Natividad. Three, two, one. Amanda, welcome to the show. Thanks for being on. Yeah, thanks for having me, Kevin. I've been looking forward to this for a long time. So Ronnie Higgins on Twitter actually asked a super exciting question I want to start with, which is that it seems like you're a trained chef. And the question is, how has that influenced the way you think about marketing? I love this question. This is so fun. Um, you know, I think a lot of it just, it comes, a lot of the way I think about marketing is definitely informed by my culinary training. I mean, in, in culinary school, you have to get used to things like really harsh feedback, <laughs> quick feedback, um, working quickly with multiple stakeholders or sometimes on your own, trying to be scrappy and just moving fast because knives are sharp, burners are hot, things like that. But where does that translate to marketing is, you know, I think when I talk about harsh feedback, I don't mean like collaborating with teams and people are harsh. I just mean like when you're a marketer, you have to kind of face these harsh realities of customers hating your product or hating your campaign or just not grokking something that you said or did. And I think you have to learn how to take how to how not to take that personally. And to just kind of remember or check yourself that, okay, customers, readers, whoever it is, the audience, it's not that they're there to attack you, right? Sometimes they're just, they're reacting to a thing that they didn't like. They're not reacting to you as an individual and they're not reacting to your personal character. So that's one really good lesson that I took from, from the culinary world. And the way that I use it to think about marketing and content marketing specifically is... I tend to think about it like the individual components of marketing or of content marketing are sort of like recipe ingredients to me. Like there are simple ingredients, complex ingredients, and you know, you cook them or you prepare them to make a recipe. And a recipe might be something that's like a, a tried and true, like proven marketing tactic or strategy, right? Like following, like you, you could say that in, you know, in certain cases, following an SEO driven strategy for your blog, there's kind of a, there's a recipe for that, right? I mean, especially if you're going into like certain niches, like direct to consumer, um, underserved content niche, there's usually a pretty prescriptive formula <laughs> or a recipe. But then when you and you can follow that when you're a good prep cook, or when you're a good, you know, mid level marketer. But as you pick up these skills and keep learning, you develop a refined palette, <laughs> you develop your, you hone your skills, and then you can sort of become a, a chef, right? Where you are inventing your own recipes. And then you start to see 
you know, sticking with the case of SEO and content, you start to see, okay, I did this great, you know, SEO driven blog, grew traffic to my site. Now I'm going to use this content to create other stuff and I'm going to create a better email drip campaign, or I'm going to use this to, you know, in whatever demand generation efforts, things like that, that, you know, only sort of more seasoned marketers or chefs are able to do. Yeah, I love this analogy about the recipe and the formula because I totally agree with you. We talk about this all the time. And an another thing that works really well within this analogy, in my mind, is this difference between baking and cooking. And I'm a amateur, I'm a good eater, but I'm an amateur chef. So I just want to point that I'm not an expert here. And so the difference between baking and cooking, in, in my humble understanding, is that in, in baking, it really you really have to follow the exact recipe. And in cooking, you can go more with your gut literally, like you don't have to be, you don't have to exactly follow the recipes. It might still turn out well. Uh, and you have this, this, uh, this, this space to be creative. So yeah, I, I love that as well, because marketing is not always about following the recipe to an exact T. You want to tailor it to your audience and maybe to your personal style as well. I love that. I love the idea of baking versus cooking, because yeah, to your point, when you're baking something, there are some things that you really have to do in a certain way or else things are not going to work. But when you're cooking, you can just, you know, you can add things on the fly, add a little extra salt, extra fat, if it makes sense to. <laughs> <laughs> uh, but no, there's really something to it. My former content director at G2, uh, Amy Alexa, she's also a trained chef. She's, she's now a toast. Uh, she, she has recently switched roles. But yeah, she's another great marketer. And there's so many cool concepts from the from the shit or from the from the cooking world to to steal my mind another one that i really love is mise en place uh basically the, the the preparational aspect and the way that you almost handle food in this kind of like chain where everybody has different stations um yeah it's a lot to be learned it seems like oh yeah i love that yeah in in a you know in a proper kitchen you'd have like a prep cook uh you'd have like a fish cook someone who makes sauces that totally is like a marketing team where everybody has their own um their own unique contribution and then the team just works really well together yeah. um, everything in its place <laughs> <laughs> i love that it's a, it's such a good concept uh really internalizing that in the way that i work um but so when it comes like sticking with the whole theme about uh cooking and recipes i, I noticed you have you have a large following on twitter you have over seventy thousand followers and you you pump out these amazing threads and they're like really really high quality, or sometimes I ask myself, wow, that's like, that's a really good blog article. Um, what's your recipe or your formula for creating these amazing Twitter threads? Yeah, I appreciate this. Um, you know, I, I really try to stick with things that I know well. Um, and usually by that, I mean, it's either something that I have a lot of experience in doing, whether it's a project that I oversaw and worked on. And so I know it really intimately. Um, or it's something that I've studied for a very long time. So I usually, so I stick, I stay in my lane. Like I just kind of stick with what I know. Uh, so that's one. Um, and the other thing is I also try to create content that I think is novel, that is interesting or new to readers, in this case, you know, other marketers in some way. So, you know, there are times when, well, I would just say like, I try to focus on what's novel to someone whether it's introducing a couple of brand new concepts or undiscovered examples of something, or even just finding a new way to phrase something that might exist, like kind of giving a name to something that something that people are might be doing, but 
um, doesn't have common terminology yet. So that's kind of how I, that's kind of my recipe for that. I also spend a lot of time on each thread. So I will, I will almost never just kind of tweet something on the fly and then add to it as I'm going, or I, I, it usually is an, a bigger idea that I've been chipping away at for a couple of weeks. Can I ask how long it takes you typically to write a thread? Yeah. So, um, often what happens is that I'll think of an idea and then I'll just kind of add stuff to it in a little Evernote file over the course of a couple of weeks. But if I was, but when I write something from start to finish in one sitting, it probably takes me like two to three hours to write something. I, it's like, it's not that, it's not that many words, right? I think, I think most of my threads are probably around 200 to 300 words. So that's a really, really short blog post when you think about it that way. But I, I spent a lot of time like um, trying to compress and condense ideas. And I actually really just see Twitter as a great copywriting exercise, right? Because it's a great exercise in direct response copywriting where you, you're going to get drop off, right? If, if your thread isn't interesting, people are going to leave. If something is phrased awkwardly, people aren't going to understand where it's a little bit more, it can be a little more forgiving in a blog post, right? Where you are, they're, they're, they're buckled up and they're in for, okay, I'm going to read this and get the full context. Twitter kind of tends to be people skimming and they're like, just keep me, keep me engaged, keep me engaged. So you have to make things punchy, easy to read, easy to understand. And that's kind of why I, that's, that's actually a big reason why I enjoy writing Twitter threads so much is it feels like it's, it feels like the CrossFit of writing to me. (laughs) (laughs) Tell me more about that. Yeah. I mean, you know, you just, you have to, you got to make sure your ideas are sharp got to make sure that writing is punchy, that you're getting straight to the point and you're not wasting anybody's time. And then also just it helps when you are organizing or structuring the content in a way that is really easy to, to grok, right? Where instead of doing paragraphs in each tweet, breaking it up a little bit with some headers or what to expect or what's coming next. But that's kind of, you know, I think for you and I who have SEO training, that's kind of inherent to just how we write things right where you're like oh of course you would make it easy to skim of course you would make of course you would optimize for readability but i don't think it's obvious to everybody yeah i agree i absolutely agree it's almost like the garnish on a good plate where it's it's really the presentation matters right and especially in fine dining that's a evaluation criteria but yeah i just noticed some people who are really good at the threat game also using emoji emojis very strategically and mm-hmm. and really think about how to condense and synthesize everything in the shortest but but most ex- most best understandable form possible. Do you use any any tools to write your threads? I mean, you mentioned Evernote where you store ideas, and then is there any anything tactic tactically that that you do to to uh, write the threads, or is it all just in a Twitter user interface? Um. So I so I use Evernote to dub my ideas. I do I do have Notion as well that I use sort of for the project management piece. So I have like a sort of Twitter calendar uh, template that I use in Notion. But when it comes to writing the actual threads, I use type, Typefully. So typefully.com, where you can... They've also just made some really, really nice updates to it where as you're drafting the thread, you can see the real-time preview of what it looks like in mobile. So you know exactly how, your, how the thread will, will render. You can also click and drag around the tweets so you can reorder stuff, which comes in really, really handy. So highly recommend that tool. I'm not an affiliate or anything. That's just a, you know, a 
a pure organic mention. <laughs> but I do want to ask you too, because your threads are extremely high quality. Like when you write about SEO, like I mean, I I bookmark all all of these threads of yours. So because they're they seem so like thoroughly researched, a lot of examples, uh backed up by resources or sources and stuff like that. So how how much time goes into a normal thread for you? Well, thanks for asking. Uh, sorry, thanks for mentioning that in the first place. Um, I, I would say um, a typical thread for me probably takes the same time, like from yeah one to, one to three hours based on what it is. As you mentioned, sometimes you can just shake out something you've done a hundred times, something that you've really internalized, and then other times it's a bit more um, explorative. I also kind of repurpose my ideas and test my ideas on Twitter. That's one reason for why I love the platform so much is because I can just post a single tweet with an idea and see what the resonance is and then write something longer on my blog or my newsletter. So I was curious if you do the same where you like test ideas or if you repurpose some threads into blog articles, which I, I think is totally legit. Yeah, I, I really try. I try to get better about that. Um, and I actually have a... I've been thinking about this idea more of where all these kinds of things interplay or connect with each other and how it culminates in a blog post. So the way I think about it is maybe you, you know, I haven't talked about this yet. So maybe like you, we can refine the messaging together. But I was thinking about the ways in which events and content can uh, are interconnected. So I think about all this content as feedback opportunities and source of truth. So to me, feedback opportunities are any time you get a chance to get real-time feedback. So it could be in a face-to-face -face conversation like this one, feedback from your boss directly, um, or events, right? Like webinars, uh, conferences, tweets. I, th I consider social media to be events in that you're able to get some real-time interaction or inter you know, real-time feedback. And the feedback could be crickets. Like it could be tweeting something that completely flops. And then maybe you realize, you go back to it and you realize, why, why didn't that do well? Like maybe this idea wasn't new to people. Maybe I, was, maybe I was unclear in how I phrased this. That to me is feedback. And then the source of truth is to me the blog post or a white paper, or an ebook that the source of truth that people, that readers are referencing over time. So somebody might reference a white paper again, right? They might be like, I read this thing in that white paper, I'm going to look that up again, or I'm going to re-download it, whatever that is. And then of course, for a blog article, it's something that you can search for on Google and you find it. And the way that I think about it, though, is there's sort of this paradox, right, where you think, oh, like all my ideas need to be absolutely final by the time it gets to a blog post, which, yeah, I think is true. Like it's, it's your fully formed, really thoughtful idea that's edited carefully. And then people think like social media is like, you know, you're, you're testing reactions and stuff like that, which, yes, is true. But the thing, the paradox is that once you are putting out content in an event, it's final, like it's mm. out there, right? Like you, you can't take back what you said publicly um, whether and you can delete a tweet sure but in general like the idea is out there and people have internalized it but with a source of truth even though that's supposed to be the final record right it's something that you can edit you can update that so i think about it as use it to your advantage so you can use these events to get feedback on 
on your ideas, if something is resonating, if it's not, if something's unclear. And then you take that into account as you refine that idea, incorporate those edits, and then post that into your blog post or white paper, right? We'll just stick with blog post. But then as if that idea evolves over time, then you can just update it, right? You can't update a tweet after you've sent it out, but you can keep updating that blog post. And that's really where it counts because that's the thing that people are going to be searching for. Like when it comes down to it, they're going to Google that thing, whether it's like, oh, did, what did Kevin say in that thread about Google's algorithm change? Like they can reference that. But if you were to do a blog post on it, you can keep updating that blog post and then people will keep finding that based on search. Yeah, I think that's super smart and, and something I had also been thinking about from a slightly different angle, but the same type of conclusion, which is it's almost like the difference between the mindset when creating content from an SEO perspective and a, I would say, a, a modern content marketing perspective, which can have a big overlap, but not always. And so from an SEO perspective, it's really the source of truth concept that you were talking about, which is the everything is a canonical document. There's one unique canonical version of this and you kind of have a, a URL that never changes and you just refine and update the content. And then the other end of that same coin is the idea that everything is a feed, right? There's just nothing is canonical, nothing is static, everything is ephemeral and everything constantly, like everything is on the Twitter or an Instagram story, uh, which then gives you the freedom to just, as you said, refine this idea over time. And then the, the question is, how do these two play together in a, in a way that it is most efficient? Because one thing that is top of my mind for me is uh, time efficiency. If I put in two, three hours in a Twitter thread, I want to make sure that it has a lasting effect and it's not just something that gets 100 likes and then people move on. So I think these two concepts, there's a, there's a lot of room to, for, for crossover. Um, and then the other question is, how many big ideas do you have throughout a lifetime, maybe as a creator? Right. I'm thinking about uh, Kay He from Red Reads, uh, who you, you introduced me to, uh, and who has these couple of amazing concepts, like the $10,000 framework, for example, for prioritization. Like, I think that's a, that's a massive idea. He's probably going to refine that over time, and you can apply that idea like a filter or like a lens and look at everything else through that kind of lens. The, the, the kind of the summary, the, the guide to that idea then would live on the blog, but on social, Kay can then refine these ideas and bounce it off of the, like with other people and discuss it and all that kind of stuff. Or at conferences, uh, happened to me actually, where I, I planned one of my ideas is this tipper model. Uh, and somebody in the audience asked an amazing question that completely caught me, you know, uh, out of the uh, blue, but it was, it was great input for me to take the idea to the next level. So I, I love this interplay and, and maybe while we're at it, uh, one question I'm curious about is like, what are some of your ideas that you're most proud of or some of the concepts that you have maybe developed that are unique, that are, that have helped you throughout your career over and over again? Hmm. It's funny because there are some that I have that I've kind of talked about that I have not like formalized into any kind of blog post. I don't know why. I think I'm just, in, I don't know, procrastinating, but <laughs> one that I really like that I've, I've talked about a little bit in some webinars that I've done and it's in my content marketing 201 course but I've talked about this idea of zero click content, which I think I made up. I think I have, <laughs> if someone says I didn't, then like, I apologize, but I think I made it up, but it's zero click content, which the, the, it is essentially just giving the most valuable parts or totally valuable parts of your content away for free. 
um, where the reader doesn't have to click through because they've gotten the value from that thread that you wrote, or it's an, or maybe it's in a newsletter. It doesn't doesn't have to be for Twitter. Could be in a LinkedIn post. Could be an email newsletter. Whatever it is, where somebody is getting that fully formed, highly valuable idea, and it works in that standalone piece. And then clicking through is additive to the experience. It's not required for understanding. So it's more about the idea of not teasing your content. It's just giving away the value. Zero click content. You don't have to click to click on it to get value, but you can click to learn more. And it's only additive to your understanding of the overall concept. I love that idea. I think it's so telling for our times, right? Like any, any bit of friction just decreases the, the reach and the potential that a piece of content can have these days. Yeah, um, yeah, that's a that's a very powerful one, and there, it, and it's also I just wanted to add like it's yeah. also like it's also just indicative of the way the algorithms are working. Things like if you coin a phrase or like if you have some kind of definitive guide of something, you want to own a snippet in the SERP, right? Ideally, or like publishing your amazing ideas on Twitter, like you're gonna get more reach if you make it native to the platform. And that's like any other social platform these days. So it's in your best interest as a creator, as a marketer, to do that, to create this kind of zero click content, because, you know, maybe kind of bringing the paradox here is the more that you do this, the more people will see it, the more they'll trust you. And then over time, the more likely it is that they will subscribe to you or buy from you or those, those sorts of things. I love that point. Because in, in my mind, the old school way to think about bridging the gap between these platforms or between a social platform and your blog is to say, hey, I'm just going to create this amazing thread to stay with Twitter. And then I'll cut off maybe the end, the conclusion and ask people to come over to my blog or a post at all. But then at the end, post a CTA and then ask people to get over to my blog. Whereas in reality, I think it's harder and harder to move people away. Because as you said, these algorithms, they might even punish you or decrease the reach if you, if you have a lot of links away from the platform. And so the new school way to think about that, in, in my humble opinion, is to say, okay, I'm just going to build an audience on a platform, not try to put, not, not try to get them out of the platform, but going to deliver a lot of value and inject these ideas into the community, then build more search demand for these ideas and, surf and, and try to rank or will rank at the top on Google then. So it's almost like a little bit of a demand creation, even though it's not a push channel per se, it's still some form of organic marketing but you kind of seed these ideas in the hope that people then search on Google for it. And that's where you're present then. Yeah, you're totally right. And I think part of it too, is that there's so much content now, right? Like every day there's more content on the internet than there was the day before. <laughs> so, so part of it is helping to de-risk you or your brand or whoever for the readers 10 years ago, 15 years ago, maybe 20 years ago, we were able to do things like, you know, want to find out how to get more leads, click here to learn more, right? Like years ago, that was like, okay, I'll click on that. But today it's, yeah, duh, we know this. Or like, of course I want this, but just give it to me for free. Just tell me what the thing is. Um, why would I click on your, your blog? I have never heard of you or, you know. It's so true. Like it's so true. People, <laughs> you cannot shout this out loud enough in my mind. But stay, staying on that same theme, how do you think about standing out from the noise? How do you think about grabbing attention in the first place? You mentioned writing about novel ideas or new things. Do you have any framework or anchor of how you stand out from the noise? 
That's a really good question that I don't think I have a great answer for. <laughs> because I mean, because I, I think it's because I do feel strongly about positioning yourself, your content in a way that's completely fresh to the readers. I think nowadays when a lot of content niches are pretty saturated, then now the key differentiator has to be you in some way, whether it's your tone, your experience, whatever it is. I don't try to compete with anybody in the sense of how am I going to write the most comprehensive guide to this thing? Because I kind of feel like someone else can do that better than, than me. Like, I don't, I, that kind of just feels like a race to the bottom or something. I try to think about it as like, well, what can I do that's just different? That's like, that's unique to me, unique to my experience that I can say in only a way that I would say it. And I think about that because I think it's also more, hopefully, I, it's more useful to people because everybody's different, right? Like you and I will never have the same life experiences. You and I will never talk the same. We'll never use the same exact combination of words in any given sentence. But that's great. That's a great thing because it means that there's room for both of us, right? Like, so I think about find ways to, to hone your voice and to be more of yourself, like to find ways to be the most maximum version of yourself because nobody can compete with that, right? That's probably derived from like a Naval thing. So I'm not going to take credit for that. <laughs> but I do think it's powerful. and I do think it's true. Because if you're, if you're speaking from your unique points of view and your lived experiences, then nobody can really compete with that. I love that. I love that so much because it's so true. You know, I, I, I know some things about content, but I want to hear what does Amanda say about content? How does she think about content? Like, how does she approach this topic and then learn kind of what resonates from that for me? So I totally agree. It's, a, it's not a zero-sum game. It's just a, an additive game where people add their experiences and their opinions and then maybe some, some universal ideas crystallize out of that. You, you also recently um, had this amazing Twitter thread where you basically tweeted, I'm, I'm tired of content or a content that's only focused on SEO goals, but I'm wired by content that powers the entire marketing strategy. And part of that tweet was writing about how so many topics are saturated and how so many industries have matured. How do you think about content in uh, saturated topics or how do you avoid saturated topics? Yeah. Um, I think about, are there ways you can just, that you can think more about pain points or problems first. I know that's a cornerstone to SEO, but it is a it's deeper than finding things that have the highest keyword search volume. It's also just thinking about like, truly, what are the things your customers are worried about? This works really well, especially for highly competitive or highly commoditized industries, like things like SEO agencies, for instance. Like there are so many of them, right? And <laughs> It, like you can argue that they're all, most of them are basically the same, right? When someone is looking for content from an SEO agency, they're probably not looking for what is SEO, right? Like they, they probably, the reader or the person searching probably cares more about, well, what is that SEO agency's perspective on SEO? Or what is it like to work with them? What's their perspective on project management? Where maybe that's not even about SEO specifically, but it's just about the way they do business. So that's kind of what I think is more interesting um, in terms of like highly competitive industries or niches. When I wrote that tweet too, I was also thinking about, it, was also, it also came from a reflection of 
when I worked at Growth Machine, an SEO and content agency. I wasn't managing the clients day to day, but you know, of course I got to see all of it and I got to see all the content that Growth Machine was creating for clients. And there was so much content that was just so good where I was like, dang, like I have rarely seen this this level of quality from an agency, like from an external partner that doesn't know my company's day to day. And I was always really impressed with the content that Growth Machine created, you know, for some of the clients that we worked with, I would, you know, join all their email lists and try to get in their marketing funnel, understand how they were, how they were, you know, creating content or using content. I'm, I'm sure there's, I'm sure today there's an exception, but I hadn't seen a client who was leveraging the blog content into the rest of their marketing. And that I thought was wild because even if you just look at it from a, a financial perspective, it's wait, so you would pay an agency thousands of dollars per month and then only use that content for one purpose? Like you wouldn't use it for other stuff? Like that to me is just like, that's like buying an expensive purse and wearing it one time. <laughs> right? Like wouldn't you, you would use, you would wear that thing. You would wear that item of clothing to as many events as possible, as many special events as possible, right? Like why wouldn't you do the same for your content where if you paid $300, $500, whatever it is for a blog post, why would you not try to use that for your email newsletter or turn it into some kind of drip sequence or a welcome series uh, or distill it into a Twitter thread? Like that, that to me is like, why don't people do this more often? Like there's no risk, but that's also just kind of where that, that sort of rant came from. Yeah, it's from, it's a good problem that we also covered in the beginning where we talked about repurposing these Twitter threads. It, it all goes goes back to yeah coming up with really good ideas or solving customer pain points and then using that on different channels and i have a story that some marketers feel like if they repurpose a twitter thread they kind of dilute their content in some way or feel guilty about or shame or i don't know what uh, but reality is that only a fraction of your audience probably sees the thread or the social post but on your blog it increases increases the chance that somebody uh, for who it is relevant might see that content how do you do pain point research? How do you find out what pain points your target audience has? I, I mean, I have, a, I have the good fortune of marketing to other marketers. So I, t I talk to marketers every day. So I'm pretty dialed into their pain points. But in general, um, through a lot of, well, one, case study interviews. And I think this applies to kind of any industry. When you're talk so that's when you're talking face-to-face -face with a customer and learning their story. Um, I think taking some time to really focus on their pain points and learn more about them and not just ask, why did you engage us? But like, what are the steps that led you to this? Like, what else did you try that didn't work? That I think is a great opportunity to uncover, you know, a, a swath of pain points. Creating things like product advisory boards, I think is also really good. And they can be informal. I kind of I, I, think, I think about this in a couple of different ways. Like one, you can have a formalized product advisory board where you meet with them quarterly or twice a year and in a non-pandemic world, maybe you can fly them out to your headquarters and have a really nice sort of closed door conference. Like that is really nice, right? It's a good relationship build, makes them feel special and they're getting, a, they're getting a lot of value from each other. Um, and then some informal ways to do that are to just sort of stay in touch with the customers that you had good interactions with, where it just sort of is like your customer BFF, where <laughs> you have, you just, you have good, you know, good mutual rapport, you learn from each other, 
um, and you feel comfortable emailing them or reaching out to them sporadically to ask for feedback and to, to test ideas. Um, this was something I did during my time at Fitbit when I worked on the B2B team. We had a lot of great case studies that we did, but I also used the opportunity to kind of stay in touch with these customers and to just kind of be friends with them. And, you know, this has been many years, but I'm still friends with some of them. Like, I still keep in touch. We're Instagram friends. We, like, we talk regularly because we're just genuinely friends at this point. But I think trying to set yourself up for opportunities like that, it is the best way to uncover these pain points because and because like these pain points are things that you only learn when you get to know someone well like when you understand their day-to-day challenges like you don't you can't really get good pain points just by asking someone like what's a problem you have like (laughs) i mean not that they won't tell you but it's a it's this combination of like you both don't know what you don't know right and like what's interesting to you is probably not interesting to your customer, right? If you were to be like, wow, I didn't, you know, at SparkToro, for instance, if, if someone, like, I think it's interesting when people face challenges with uh, market research surveys. The people conducting these surveys probably don't think that's interesting because that's just their day-to-day. But to me, it's like, wow, like, these are really expensive. Like, these cost, like, five figures, and it takes a lot of time to develop these questions. And there's an art to drafting these questions. You can't just add, you can't just like put out a survey with multiple choice. Be super thoughtful about what you ask and in the order in which you place these questions. Like that's all interesting to me. But someone who is creating these surveys, like they probably they're probably just like I don't know. This is Monday to me. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, and I see this red thread that we have going on about feedback, right? Just sourcing feedback and, and getting an understanding of the real world, whether that's through. Uh, tweets or blog posts or then maybe uh, surveys and, and customer research. I'm sure there's some of the of the better questions you've encountered in your uh, long experience as a marketer um, that to ask customers to to quicker get to their pain points. Does any question or a couple of questions come to mind that are just really thought provoking, or do you feel like it's much more something that has to be tailored specifically to the product and to the market? I'm not afraid to ask questions that are negative or that that encourages someone to think negatively in the, in the case of like a customer interview because I think tapping into emotions is a great way to get an honest response or a candid response. So I like asking about things like what did you do that didn't work? What's a tool that you tried that you hated? And it isn't it's not an opportunity to to bash someone, right? Because this is this is a private conversation. But I think if you can get someone to be pretty honest about like, I hated this tool because of these things, like you're going to get a very genuine, very visceral response. And I think those are really good. To me, those are the best learning opportunities. 100%. You also do a really good job in marketing SparkToro. It feels very organic, very community driven. Love the emails, love the engagement on Twitter. Is it something that you explore step by step and kind of grow into or test into or is it something where you have a very clear strategy and a very clear idea and you're just executing against that strategy it's sort of the former i mean part of the i think i mean i thank you by the way that's very kind i think a big part of it is just that the way that i think about marketing and the way that i do marketing is just inherent to the to the sparktoro product so it really is truly just a great mutual fit part of it too comes from the fact that we are 
a weird little team. <laughs> it's just the three of us. It's myself, Rand Fishkin, and Casey Henry. We all have um, a lot of marketing experience. So I think there are ways in which we can do things that a lot of marketing teams can't do, won't do, don't want to do um, for a mix of reasons, right? Like, and I guess to, to be more specific here, like there are a lot of things we don't do that really go against the best practices that I am sure most marketing teams would cringe at because it's some combination of like, well, we have the experience to know like that, that isn't going to work or that isn't going to be worth our time. Like A-B testing colors, like, like we're, no, like that's just a way to us. That's a waste of time in part because it's just the three of us. Like, what are we going to do? Like have me like stare at color palettes all day <laughs> and ask Casey to recode the site so that it shows you know, blue versus purple like that. I don't we just don't think that's inherently that's not a good use of our time. It's it's just three of us. But also like, OK, if you found that blue landing pages converted better, is it because blue is better or is it just because it just so happened that 60 percent of people on a given day happen to like the color blue? <laughs> right. Like, like like there are just so many variables that go into A-B testing that for us it just kind of isn't it just isn't really worth the bandwidth because we don't we don't play by those certain best practices we are able to just kind of think outside the box and be a lot more creative about how we do things like in general we have a couple of things that we adhere to that we stick to like we have office hours our monthly or so uh, webinar series so we always have that the overall goal of that is to help people do better marketing to do better audience research and then hopefully Spark Toro is a tool that they can use to do those things. Sort of a product-led approach to webinars. Um, and then we also have the blog, right? Where we don't have like a blog calendar, but it is like, well, we should post here. So, so we might go a whole month without posting something, but in the next month we might have like three or four blog posts. So we just have these certain channels or platforms for which we, are, we know we're going to create content for or do marketing on. But we don't have this like grand vision that's very prescriptive that is like we have to have all these things align. Maybe that's part of the magic too, because it has a very Maybe. authentic, organic feel to it and it feels very, very value first. And, and part of the authenticity, at least for me, is also how you engage with each other on Twitter. I see a lot of very, very personal, um, not, not intimate, but personal tweets where it's not just about work or marketing, but Maybe Rand cooked a pasta dish or tried out a new recipe and then you two have an interaction about that. Um, and it made me wonder, how do, you, um, how do you balance family life, work life, side hustles, Twitter? How do you bring all of that together without burning out? And that's also a question by Remley John from Twitter, by the way. Yeah, I mean, the answer is I don't. <laughs> I don't balance these things really well. Um, there will be like three days in a row that I am only processing email and like communications, but then other days where I'm only doing stuff on Twitter, I think kind of leaning into where you are finding current inspiration is really helpful. And I think this kind of goes back to like our marketing being very organic and maybe authentic because it is right. Like, because like we don't, we don't have this like Twitter calendar that we're trying to adhere to. It's just like when inspiration strikes, will be on Twitter, whether it's back and forth between me and Rand um, or posting content there or 
having that blog content where it's like, oh, I, I have these ideas. I really, really want to get out there. I'm going to write all these blog posts. I think leaning into where you have a predisposition for or where your mood, where the mood strikes is really helpful. And then also just taking breaks. I mean, we're really big on chill work at SparkToro. And there's so much to that where, where it is like, yeah, like don't work just for the sake of working. Don't kill yourself with, you know, 60 hour, 80 hour work weeks. Well, be smart about how, you're, how you use your time. It isn't just don't work too hard. It's also just work smart. Everything that we do usually has multiple use cases or multiple purposes, like publishing a high engagement Twitter thread meets a bunch of goals, you know, overall awareness of SparkToro. It, it might drive registrations to an event that we have. It'll, it might grow both of our Twitter followings. Like those are all like multiple goals. It might sound crazy to someone to spend all day on a Twitter thread, but if it can achieve these goals of like driving 70 signups to a webinar, like that's not nothing, right? Driving signups to a webinar, driving traffic to your site, growing my personal email newsletter list, growing my Twitter following. I think that's a great use of time. It might sound silly on the surface, but when, it, when we can kill multiple birds with one stone, I think it's great. <laughs> yeah, I don't think it's silly at all. I think you and, and uh, Rand and Henry have understood something that has been going on for a while, which is really that the attention shifts to people, right? I think the creator economy is an outcome of that where it's not, people don't follow companies, they, they follow the people working at the company, right? They follow specific people. And I think so many things that, um, so many things that we see are, are part of that. Uh, whereas, for example, like the, the rise of like popular CEOs, right? Like I think that's another symptom of more attention shifting to other people. Maybe, maybe, maybe there's a better wording for that, but it, it really fits into the whole creator economy. Uh, and I think another thing that it fits into is kind of this meme culture, uh, which is not new necessarily. I remember looking at cat pictures when I was in college, which was a good while ago. But um, yeah, I was wondering, like, how do you think about memes? How do, how do memes fit into content marketing or content strategy as a whole? Is that more like a lucky accident? Is that something you can be intentional about? Should you jump on the bandwagon or not? How do you think about it? I stay away from most of it because I think if you, if you don't nail it, then it's super cringe and it can really hurt your brand. <laughs> and I think it's better. This is the case where I personally think it's better to skew on the side of lukewarm than to just risk scorching your, your brand equity or your reputation just for the sake of a meme. As a consumer, like I think memes are hilarious and they're fun and they often capture my moods, but I always just feel like it's often risky for brands to take, to take advantage of because if it's not on brand to you, it just looks try hard, it looks cringe, and you don't have to tap into pop culture if it isn't core to who your brand is. Like, I think if it, if it is core to your brand, then I do think it is worth having a couple people. And I do think it should be more than one person, at least a couple people on the team who can kind of speak that language, who are kind of fluent in using memes and pop culture for the brand. And when they say it shouldn't be one person, it's just like, it shouldn't rest on one person's shoulders to take advantage of memes and viral moments because that person, whoever they are, will always, they'll miss something. If they miss something, they're going to beat themselves up over it because I think that's how a lot of content creators think is, oh, shoot, I missed this opportunity. Like, I'm, I, and, the, and that FOMO was really visceral in that case. 
So I think it should be, it just needs to be core to the brand, inherent to how they communicate anyway. And there need to be multiple, multiple creators and people um, on the team who can, who can execute that. I agree, especially on the execution part. There are just some people who really have a hand for this. Uh, tomorrow, for example, I'm recording a podcast with Trunk Fan, who is a meme engineer in my mind. Amazing. Oh my God. Yeah, he's the best. I'm so excited for this. <laughs> me too. Me too. But me for myself, I, I actually don't ever post memes because I, I just can't. Maybe it's because I'm German. We're not funny, but uh, <laughs> <laughs> it's just, I, I'm not, I'm not, I don't have German a hand for that. Very analytical, but on the meme side of things, I'm, I'm better on the receiving end. Um, I know, I know Wait, on that note of yeah, Trog Fan. I was, uh, I listened to, or I watched the episode of My First Million with Hassan Minhaj, mm. and he talks a little bit about Trung, where he's, where he's like, he's like fascinated by Trung, and was just like, that guy is hilarious, and he must hit, the way he phrased it was something like, he must be just all this garbage going through <laughs> his brain all the time, like, how does he manage that? Like, I am so curious about that with Trung myself, like, Trung and I are friendly and occasionally we'll DM and like, I will just sometimes reach out and be like, dude, like props to you. I don't know how you do this, but like, I hope you like, go stay hydrated. Like they're, you're incredible. <laughs> I don't know how you keep up with all this. I am exhausted on your behalf. I'm going to go take a nap now. <laughs> yeah, hundred percent. It's, it's mind blowing. And he, he writes these really good blog articles, which start off almost, almost as a meme. And then they go into like some really interesting statistics and insights and revelations it's a it's a craft in my mind and he has really he's he's really mastered it um absolutely yeah i want to I be mindful of your time i would if you don't mind end with one uh question on the more serious end to just round this amazing conversation up uh and which is um if you were to reflect back what do you think is one big assumption that most people hold that in your mind is no longer true I think one assumption people hold is that they feel like they always need to have a strong strategy before they do something. It's not wrong, but I just don't think it's right. <laughs> I think, um, you know, there are on one, on one side, there are things like serendipity that you, that you need to be kind of open to and but you can't really you can't really say that serendipity is part of your strategy. So people aren't people aren't going to do that. But I think you need to be open to it. And I think being open to that kind of serendipity allows you to be more creative or take advantage of viral moments or interesting distribution opportunities. When I say this, it's it's also just tied to the idea of I think you need to have conviction in the ideas that you have or that the things you want to do and I think it's okay to have these strong opinions where you're like, I really just believe we should do this podcast or this podcast episode in this way because that's interesting to me. It's what I want to hear. I think this is, this is the type of content that the world or that the marketing world needs more of. And I want to, I want to create that. I think people need to do more of that. And I think teams and leadership should be more supportive of this. Because I think it's all, it, also, it also all kind of goes back to it's what makes you unique. It's what drives your, unique dif your, your key differentiator. And in a world where there is more content than ever, that's kind of the only way you can stand out. So 
You don't have to have a strategy for everything you do. Maybe instead just have some strong goals that you're working towards. Have a vision and then be open to changing it along the way. Preach. Preach. It almost sounds like after spending many years as a chef in the kitchen, you develop a gut feeling that means you don't always have to cook after recipe. Maybe you, already, you, have, a, you have a gut feeling about what will work out. That's my attempt to like close this frame here. Um, Amanda, thank you, so, yeah, <laughs> yeah, right. thank you so much for coming on and spending the time. This was amazing. Where can people find and follow you? Oh my gosh. Uh, okay. So for me personally, you can find me on Twitter at Amanda Nat, and you can subscribe to my marketing and creative newsletter, The Menu, over on amandanat.com. And then for SparkToro, check us out at sparktoro.com. We provide audience research tools so that you don't have to waste hours and lots of money. We have free accounts, so you get some sample queries per month. And we also have some free tools like fake follower audits for Twitter, uh, Spark score for Twitter, and trending topics. So check us out. Good reminder, I gotta check out how many fake followers I have on Twitter. That being said, <laughs> thanks for coming on again. Thanks for spending the time. Go follow an, uh, Amanda and SparkToro. And yeah, thanks so much. Yes. Three, two, one.